Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hey, everyone. Before I introduce the guest for this week, I just wanted to say that we are going to be continuing to have some really powerful stories coming up on this podcast. Really interesting people from all different experiences, different ages, different backgrounds. And looking at this in so many different ways, there's been just an explosion of listeners over the last year. So this is most certainly of interest to a lot of people for so many different reasons. And I'm so glad to know that this has been helpful. We get really powerful feedback from people as well. Thank you for writing in. It's really very much appreciated. I'm gratified. We're all gratified. The whole team is gratified, really, truly. We do this all for you. So I wanted to let you know about today's guest. Isami Dane is a subject matter expert on human trafficking and child safety. She grew up in Japan and was raised by professional con artists under the guise of quote-unquote missionaries. Her home was an unsafe place for children as her mother became her sex trafficker at the age of nine. Her mission is to be a voice for the exploited and abused within religious settings and educate leadership on the subjects of anti-human trafficking and child safety. Isami has a Bachelor of Science degree in Interdisciplinary Studies, Graphic Design, Communications, and Psychology, and has completed professional training in global and domestic anti-human trafficking, has an active ICF coaching certification, and has appeared on multiple shows and podcasts internationally. Her story of resilience has allowed her to connect with thousands of survivors around the globe. She currently resides in Las Vegas, Nevada with her husband, and you can find more info on Isami and her work at isamidane.com. Here's Isami now. It is so nice to speak to Isami Dane. And thank you to Andrew, who does my social media, etc., for connecting us. It's really lovely. So if you can take a moment and just introduce yourself and what brings you to the show, and then we'll start talking. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Rachel. I really appreciate that. And what brings me to the show today is just my background with a lot of the IFB movement and the cult style upbringing that I had, as well as the abuse that came along with that environment. Unfortunately, I have gone through a lot of that um, as a kid and growing up in that environment. Unfortunately, there was a lot of manipulation with what was going on. I grew up in Japan all of my life until I was 17, and then I moved to the States. And my parents were there under the guise of missionaries. They did have somewhat of a ministry until I was about 15. Once I became a teenager, things started happening with local communities they were working with. And they learn how to really trick the system where they did little to no mission work. And they were still continuing to collect that money from sponsoring churches in the U.S. There was also a lot of sexual abuse that happened within the church. My mom was my sex trafficker. And I was trafficked out to our church pianist when I was nine till I was about almost 14. So that's my upbringing. With that, um, I do identify as Christian now. My faith that I identify with is different than what I grew up with. Um, I would like to say I'm a little bit more of a free thinker. I don't practice a lot of the same things that I used to. Um, there's been a lot of deconstruction that's happened on my end. A lot of things that I've had to challenge that I thought were okay at one point um, and having to really hold myself accountable for those behaviors. So that's been my upbringing and kind of where I'm at today and, and why I'm so passionate about talking about these types of things. Okay. I'm glad that you're out of it. I mean, with hearing that story about being trafficked from nine to 14 to this person, what was his role again in the church? So this is kind of the confusing part. The person, when I met them, did not identify as male. And so they were a church pianist. They were also my piano teacher. So it made things really complicated. Later on, there were some things, I, I can't put a name to what was going on, but there was a lot of things that were hidden from our church. 
So you might have heard of a Baptist church before. That's a denomination or sect of Christianity. And there is something called fundamental Baptist, which is a step. And then there's independent fundamental Baptist. That's that's another step off. Essentially, it means that there is no board or organization to which that specific church has to be responsible to. So a lot of abuse can happen in those situations, especially within what happened with me. That and then being across the world, around the world, on the other side of the world in Japan, where the only churches holding you accountable were these sponsoring churches sending you money every month. So there's there's that really big problem with that lack of accountability there. Also, it can be dangerous because a lot of times organizations, uh, no matter what organization, a business, nonprofit, if it has multiple branches, it has a board of directors, someone who's in charge of culture, people that hold other people accountable and have different guidelines they have to meet up to. And unfortunately, within that sect, that doesn't exist. So uh, there's a lot of room for that to take place. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to say something about that before you talk more about what happened to you. And then we'll talk, of course, about other stories too, and what what you're doing now to try to educate people. When people will ask me how I define a cultic group or a dangerous group, one of the things that I talk about is that it operates independently, that there really isn't somebody watching and that the leadership isn't accountable. No one is observing from the outside what's happening and being able to report it back in an objective way. It also happens that groups know that if they're going to be held accountable, they need to show that they care about ethics or morals. And that's why, for example, with Scientology, it has this ethics department, but it's in-house. It's how they define ethics. And ethics is usually if you've done something against the church, not if the church has done something against you. And so that is a huge differentiation from a healthy organization where there there is a system of checks and balances. And not only do you have to report to someone, but you have to follow by laws, you have to follow by business ethics, if it's a business, et cetera. But there are some guidelines, some standards that you have to follow by. But no, if you are independent, then that's something that I really want people to hear, that that means that they are accountable to no one. And so then anything I mean, anything can happen. And then there's no recourse. Okay, so go ahead. So you were just starting to talk about this person who you were unfortunately, you know, pushed to have a relationship with, however that's defined there, between ages nine and 14. Did your mom know about what was happening? Yes. Wow. She 100% knew. And it's really sad to me. Um to think about this, and and this is why I speak so openly about human trafficking now, is I don't think there's much awareness around, and there's a term called familial trafficking, and this is when a family member traffics out another family member. You know, we've heard about other different types of trafficking, labor trafficking, sex trafficking. One that's recently come to light due to the Andrew Tate situation is Romeo pimping, which is when a significant other traffics out a spouse or a girlfriend or boyfriend. But with um, familial trafficking, it's a family member. And unfortunately, most people aren't looking for that. They're not looking for a mom who is using her daughter in exchange for free piano lessons for the girl and her siblings or for other things that might be happening there. They're not looking for that type of thing. And so that's why I like to raise awareness to that. But yeah, my mom was definitely aware of what was going on. Uh, I did confront her about it years later. Uh, Of course, this was not met well. It's a tough place to be, especially when this happened overseas in Japan. And uh, my mom is a U.S. citizen. There's a lot of complications with that, statute of limitations, all kinds of things. And so it's a very complex place to be as a survivor when you want to speak out and then, you know, you're not really sure like how to keep going forward. Um, but that's what's really pushed me to keep talking about this is, is the fact that I know I'm not alone. I've met other survivors, unfortunately, within church settings who have been through similar things, whether it was they were trafficked out to their pastor by their parents for sexual abuse, um, various things like that. I, I've I've heard many of these stories from people that I've been able to connect with throughout the years. And so, yeah, that was that was a lot of what was going on during that time. 
So before we go back to that time and what that was like for you, can we move ahead to the part that you just mentioned to that conversation that you had with your mom, where you confronted her and she didn't respond well? So can you take us through that conversation, the the response as well? Yeah, Um, I wasn't as assertive as I am now. If I was, there would have been a different type of conversation. I still had a relationship with my family. I hadn't quite put a name to what had happened to me yet. And I was still making excuses for everything. I think a lot of survivors go through that where something has happened to them and they feel guilty for speaking up or because it's family or somebody that has groomed them into thinking that they've had a special relationship, they feel guilty for speaking up or standing up for themselves. And that was the place that I was in. This was in about 2014. So almost 10 years ago, I was a flight attendant for Delta and uh, my mom had come to the States to visit and I had gotten her a ticket, but I met her in Minneapolis. We flew back to the Philadelphia airport and we had about a two and a half hour drive back to my house in Delaware. So I'm driving and I asked her about what had happened, why things were allowed to continue to happen. And her response was, remember that one time I sat in with you during a piano lesson and nothing happened. Okay. Really? That was proof to her? Mm -hmm. I didn't think that far at the time. And I just thought, oh, well, maybe you did your best, you know, and I made excuses about it. Now that I look back, it was blatant cover up. I don't have children, but if a child, any child came to me and said, you know, 20 years ago or however many X years ago, I was molested sexually abused, whatever. I don't think my first response would be, well, remember that time you told me, but I did this, therefore I'm not guilty. I think my first response would be, wow, I'm so sorry. You've lived through so much pain and I was part of that. Let's have a conversation. I think that's where that conversation would have gone, but unfortunately it didn't. Right. So it sounds like she was just saying, I don't want to have to deal with this and I don't want to have to look at it. I don't want to have to feel responsible. Mm, I do want to backtrack a little bit and say some of the sexual abuse did happen in front of her. Okay. So let's, yeah, let's talk about that. And then now with a newfound voice, what the conversation would have been like that was different. So go ahead. Tell me about that. Of course. So with the sexual abuse that happened, there was a lot more graphic things that I will not get into descriptively, but in front of my mother, there was groping, touching, fondling, that type of stuff. There's no way that would have been appropriate or excused. It was explicitly sexual. So there's no way she would have not known this. Uh, It was in front of her. The other types of things, those did happen behind closed doors, but there was no way she didn't know about what was going on since it did happen in front of her. That unfortunately was part of that. Uh, As far as a conversation, what would I tell myself from almost nine years ago? I think I would ask her to get out of my car. You know, I was, I was driving her home and, you know, trying to set up this nice few days for her to be back in the States and all this. And I just wanted genuine answers to what was going on. And I think I would have told her to get out of my car. Right. I mean, it's about assuming power, right? Like I have some control over this and I don't want to have you with me or next to me anymore if you're not going to, if you're not really going to respond as a mother. Yeah. I mean, I might've been nice. I might've dropped her off at a holiday inn or something, but (laughs) (laughs) she wouldn't have come to my house. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's interesting too, about the groping and other things that did happen in front of your mother. I mean, it's so um, shameless, you know, and maybe then someone does that because they think that the adult they're doing it in front of isn't going to do anything. Yeah. He definitely knew that for sure. Wow. Yeah. So how did you change during that time? What was that like for you? Very painful mm-hmm. and very isolating. I was homeschooled all my life and, uh, you know, teach their own. There's, there are reasons. Maybe um, you like to travel. I've seen families who like to travel in their vans and go cross country and that's what they love to do. And correspondence works well for them. In our case, I'm pretty sure that wasn't the reason why. Isolation was a powerful tool in our home to keep us quiet. And during that time, um, again, this was before my parents went full scam artist and was not doing any work, even though it was shady. We were renting 
a building at the time from an English-speaking church. So this church was geared towards the military, towards, uh, if you've ever heard of Yakota Air Force Base in Japan, it's close to Tokyo, about in that area. That was where we lived at the time. And so there was an American church there. We rented the building and I was allowed to talk to some of the kids if my dad didn't get in a fight with any of the pastors that week or whatever was going on. But it was really isolating, you know, and I'm sure they had their own things they were going through. But I would see these families who had healthy relationships with their kids. And I would just always think, man, I wish I had that. It was very rare, but sometimes I was allowed to go to their houses. And um, I remember just being scared of their parents, just terrified, even though they were good people because of what was happening to me at home. I look back now and I had so many strange behaviors that I did um, at some of these people's houses, like they would be eating lunch together and I'd be scared to eat with them. And so I'd just hide in my friend's room or I'd be scared to use the bathroom. You know, those types of behaviors were coming forward and, you know, I was different. You know, I was, I was, I was a weird kid. Most kids were nice to me, but it was lonely and isolating because I didn't, I didn't even know how to express what was happening to me. I think I normalized it and just assumed, oh, everybody, everybody else's family is like this. That's how I survived through those years. Incredible. You know, it shouldn't be that you're put in a situation where you even have to think about how to survive. I think about how many kids are in those situations where they think, how do I just make it through this day? How do I make it through this hour, this moment? And that often happens when you feel alone. You don't feel like the adults around you are there protecting you. And so it sounds like it was a very emotionally isolated upbringing. Was there ever anyone to talk to? I mean, because I know there's also sort of the shroud of secrecy in so many of these places. Did you have anyone? Not really. You know, I had one time I expressed something about what was happening at home. It wasn't about the sexual abuse. It was about physical abuse because that that was also going on at, at my home. And I, I was at a friend's house and my lip was swollen. And she asked me what had happened. And I told her and I, I asked her, well, doesn't your dad punch you or hit you when you get in trouble? And she looked at me and she said, no, that's, that's, that's terrible. My dad would never do that to me because he loves me. And we were really young. I don't, I don't think she even told her parents. She probably didn't even think to. It's, that's not her responsibility. She was a kid too. But I, I just remember the wheels started turning in my head. I thought, well, maybe our family isn't normal. Maybe something is wrong. But I don't think I ever thought to bring up those things other than that one time where it was blatantly obvious on my face. There were other things that happened growing up. In uh, in means of control, we had a family that lived on base who offered to let us go to Disneyland together, and I was so excited. And my sister and I were going to go. I have an older sister and a younger brother. Uh, my sister and I were going to go with them, and they had kids about our age. You know, I'd been like thinking about all these things, and um, you know, I I'd seen like cartoons of Disney and thought, oh wow! I, so that was one thing we were allowed to do, which I was surprised as well as watch really inappropriate movies by age five. Uh, never figured that correlation, <laughs> but um, I had seen all these Disney movies and I was so excited. And I think it was the week before, a week or two weeks before we were supposed to go. My mom decided that we were bad kids and did not deserve to go to Disneyland, even though that this was all accommodated by this family friend that we knew. And my sister and I have talked about this and we've both asked ourselves, what did we do that week? We don't know. I think I was about a preteen at this time. So my sister would have been about 13 or 14. We have no idea what happened for our mom to just suddenly say, well, you're not going. You don't deserve to go. So there was so much control and manipulation that I think when we were in the moment of the abuse and sexual abuse, religious abuse, verbal abuse, physical, all of that, I don't think we stopped for a second and thought, oh, we don't deserve this. We never once thought that. And um, it's sad because I, I reflect back on the younger version of myself and even the younger version of my sister and, and my brother. And I think no kid deserves to go through that. Especially when it doesn't make sense. There's something very disorienting about that uh, for people, for children, even for adults, when an adult has someone in their life too, who's suddenly angry with them or is punitive and they don't understand 
the causal relationship to the reaction they're getting. It's very off-putting and it can make you actually be in an anxious state a lot of the time because you don't know what's going to cause it next because you didn't know what caused it the last time. And so then people are on edge and then you have often, you know, in your life, people saying like, why are you so jumpy or why are you so <laughs> Well, <laughs> I can't quite get out of this, right? Like I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't. And now I'm being berated for responding to this that's making me feel really edgy. And also to finally have something that you can look forward to, to be doing and to have it taken away. You know, I don't know if that's your parents. I don't know if that's the pastor. I don't know, you know, I don't know what control mechanism was in place and who they were listening to or if they can make decisions on their own. How was it in terms of the hierarchy within the group? Could your parents make decisions on their own? Yeah. They were in charge. Wow. Okay. So they did rent the building from the other church. At one point, my dad did work with another missionary. Unfortunately, he had a reputation for getting into fights and he couldn't keep friendships because of it. And so I am 33. I've moved about 28 times in my life. And a lot of it has to do with that. So it was strange too. I look back at these patterns and I think this is a a really narcissistic way of making friends. It was a lot of the love bombing at first. So they would give people all these gifts to make people like them. And so no one would question what was going on or they'd invite them over for lunch or dinner and they'd make these really nice meals when normally throughout the week, we didn't have a lot to eat. And as soon as something happened, you know, they would blame the other person. It would be their fault um, if they were being held accountable. And like I mentioned earlier, the uh, churches supporting them were all in the US at the time. And so there was no one there checking on them. They've also, uh, my mom used to be, before she got married, she was part of an organization called BIMI, which is Baptist International Missions Incorporated, I believe is the phrase for that. Um, They used to have a policy that they did not sponsor national pastors. And so once my mother married my dad, who is from Japan, she left the organization. And ever since then, they've been with other independent Baptist churches. So it's just replicating the same thing. The one that they're with currently did like one visit in the last, gosh, over 10 years at this point. But there's there's a lot of corruption within that mission board as well. And so I don't think they care, to be honest with you, with most of this stuff. It's just really sad what a lack of accountability and, you know, structure can do. Right. And, and I think lack of accountability and that kind of structure, it can do a lot when you are someone who likes to get away with things, you know. And knowing also that you're father sounds like had a great lack of self-control. Most families will suffer when they have a parent who cannot control themselves physically or verbally. You hear a lot about kids having to deal with the shame of that or needing to move or suddenly having no funds because their parent was fired because of it. It just creates a lot of upheaval. Having all these changes, moving 28 times, it can make it hard to feel situated grounded, like this is home, I can unpack. But it sounds like your home growing up didn't feel very homey. No, no. It was very dysfunctional and very inconsistent. And I always had this feeling growing up that something's going to happen or we're going to move or we're just not going to stay here. Um, And I have later learned that I have something called an anxious ambivalent attachment style, which I'm in the process of healing from that. And that's because of childhood trauma. But um, there was always this feeling of the other shoe is going to drop at some point. If something good is happening, something bad is coming was always what was going on. And then when we traveled to the States to visit some of our sponsoring churches, that was a really unstable time as well. And for anyone listening who's not familiar with this term, missionaries often come back on what's called furlough. This means that they are coming back to the country of origin or where they were sent out from or where they have the most sponsoring churches to travel, give reports, communicate, kiss babies, put on a good show. Uh, We were part of that show. My sister, myself, and my brother were the opening act for all of these um, visits. So we had instruments that we had to perform in front of people, but we stayed in a different motel almost every single night when we were traveling in the States. And we would have a home base, but even that would consistently change. And so it was a very unstable upbringing with the moving and inconsistency. 
I'm wondering also about the inconsistency at home, just sometimes when the rules change and again, when things are unpredictable, it's hard to get a sense of consistency and predictability and like you can master how to be successful in that situation. But when you have parents who are sort of letting you be in harm's way and not protecting you or are hurting you themselves, it's very hard to wake up, I think, feeling safe in general. And so again, I'm sorry that you went through so much of that. I wonder about your father's anger also, if we can talk about that for a moment. I'm sure that got scary. And that when you do bring it up with someone else and they say, oh, no, no, actually, no, that doesn't happen to me or that really shouldn't be happening if you can help it. It's very hard to then start to really see how you're being mistreated or abused and wonder why this is happening to you and maybe not to other people. So tell me a little bit about your dad. I don't know a lot about him, to be honest with you. It was such a strange upbringing. Uh, We were rarely allowed to leave the house or even take out the trash. Uh, I remember a specific instance where I was being rebellious and I wanted to take the trash out without asking. I was about 17 and I got screamed at. And we didn't live in a dangerous neighborhood. So there was a lot of control. It was always stay where I can see you, even when our in our teens. Just very controlling, a lot of confinement to either the living room or my bedroom. So it was, it was very strange. So proximity-wise, we were always in proximity of one another. Uh, rarely were we ever apart unless I was at an approved person's house, which that kind of stopped once I turned 13, 14 because of the fights that happened. But even though my dad was in close proximity with me, I, I didn't know much about him. I just knew bits and pieces of his life before he decided to become a pastor. I briefly heard about his upbringing and I, I've pieced a few things together based on what my grandparents told me, what my sister told me, and what he has told me personally. And that is he had a rough upbringing. My grandfather was a World War II veteran from the Japanese Imperial Navy. And there were a lot of practices that I'm sure he learned in the military that he then instilled in his home. When my dad was growing up, there was an open affair uh, where my grandmother was consistently disrespected. But because it was a safe face culture, which at the time in Japan, it was very prevalent, the family just had to deal with it. The kids knew, the wife knew. It was just seen as it is what it is. And so I know he didn't have the healthiest of upbringings. And um, it makes me sad to see that um, and to think that. I don't remember except for two weeks, a time where my dad was not angry. And that was when my American grandmother died. She had passed away and my mom had to come to the States to arrange things, get the funeral in order. She was the only child. So she had to help her, her father and all that. And during that time, I just remember my dad becoming this very playful person in a way I'd never seen. Uh, We had ice cream for dinner one time. He told us we could lick the bowl. He would make lunch for us, take us to the park, goof around. He took us to an arcade, which I'd never done before. All these things. And as soon as my mom came home, the fight started again. And I don't remember a time where he was just at peace after that and was just not angry or anxious in some way. You know, I I don't make excuses for my father because at some point, everyone makes a decision. We all do. If we know that we have a problem or a struggle with anger or some sort of behavior pattern that is hurting other people, and we are aware of that, there's a decision that we have to make. And we have to take ownership of that situation. And he didn't. He never did. And so I I hold empathy for the fact that my dad didn't have a good upbringing. I can only imagine what he went through. But I also have that other side of that where the accountability is there on my end where I I can't have a relationship with him because of the abuse and because of the refusal to uh, seek appropriate help. So it's sad that I I look back and can only have two weeks of of good memories with him, but you know, they're, they're still special, even though everything else wasn't. I'm sure they are special and very, very sweet in that it was rare and short lasting, but still We drink in those moments. We need them. And we wish they could have lasted longer. 
it's hard to, because you see that he was capable of being that. That's hard. That's hard to look at. Yeah. And it, it, it saddens me because there were a lot of things that happened where could have been turning points. You know, he had so many, so much opportunity to do the right thing and he didn't. It's sad. My sister has a son and, you know, he doesn't have any relationship with his grandchild. Um, and so that, that makes me really sad. Oh, it's very hard. It's it's hard too, because it sounds like so much of what happened to was about anxiety and control and based on what? It's not clear. I mean, you know, for example, getting punished, getting screamed at for wanting to take the trash out. I mean, it's like every parent's dream. <laughs> hey, mom. Hey, dad. Can I take the trash out? What? You know, that would be a ma- gold star for you. <laughs> Um, but no, you got yelled at. And so it doesn't, it doesn't make sense except if it's coming from this abject anxiety and, and based on what, I'm not sure. So much of that is also fostered by these churches that there's sort of danger lurking around the corner and doomsday, (laughs) doomsday, right, exactly. And that a child needs to be, you know, held to some sort of standard that sort of spare the rod, spoil the child, like be tough on them so that they won't become sinners or whatever, because you know, it's a very black and white way of thinking. And so then you don't get a chance, I think, to be seen as the good kid that you were and that you are. It's sad. It does come from a lot of that, I think. And I, I sometimes I hear my parents' voice, you know, and that's just something that, you know, we internalize growing up in those environments. And I remember there was a, a specific passage of scripture. Uh, I've always been an indecisive person. Maybe that's because of the anxiety. I don't know. But I've always been that person who likes to weigh everything out, measure all these options, observe and think, okay, now I'm going to make a decision. And there is a specific passage that says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And I remember distinctly as probably as little as eight years old, my mom telling me that I was a double-minded person because I was indecisive and therefore I would have an unstable life. And that's why I was not doing well in life. And, and it, I mean, how can you not be doing well at eight years old? I don't know. You know, I was this, this terrible person for not being able to make split-second decisions. And somehow I'm this unstable person, you know, will be rejected by society. I think that had a lot to do with, you know, the way they thought is using those ideals, especially with the train up a child uh, versus, you know, when where they should go. And when they get older, they won't depart from it. I think they put a lot of unnecessary pressure on themselves to have perfect kids, because if they didn't, their reputation would be at stake. Right. I was going to say it's usually about reputation. It's, I mean, of course, there is this idea that somehow that's the devil uh, if your child does anything or even says no. But yeah, what will everyone think is often the mantra. And so a lot of people are kept on very short leashes, emotionally, physically, spiritually, because of a a sense that the community is watching. And within some of these more fundamentalist branches of religions and where there's orthodoxy, they are watching and they are judging. And it's a real thing and it shouldn't be part of the culture, but it is. It doesn't seem very spiritual, but people are ratting each other out all the time. It's to keep each other in check, but really it's just gossip, I think, and making sure that you move up sort of, or you maintain your place in the hierarchy by doing it. You know, it serves people's purpose for doing it. But then it's hard for for the children in that to know what's normal and to know that it's okay to fall asleep when you've been in the service for a long time or to speak or to make a mistake or to spill something. And I'm wondering what all the rules that you needed to follow by, what do you remember? I do also want to say, I think there was additional pressure with my parents because that was their paycheck. And they sold this ideal of perfection to churches who just ate this up. You know, you've got three... God-fearing kids that know how to play instruments. I remember one time we went to this one church and we performed for this church, you know, my my siblings and I. And this is a red flag in itself, but without consulting any of the members or any of the team or anybody, the pastor got uh, got up after we performed and he said, wow, these missionary kids are just so well-behaved and they love the Lord and we just want to bless them. 
we're going to give them a hundred dollars each, each kid. And, you know, it was, it was just a strange thing that happened, but sadly, and, and this is what happens a lot with, uh, especially within the independent group, these missionaries and their kids is their kids are being exploited. And if they show up perfectly or play an instrument or can sing, pastors are very quick to open their wallets. It is an easy trick. It is the easiest trick in the book for a ministry family to use their children as bait to lure pastors into opening opening the wallet and getting people to support them. I wonder too, I'm sure there are other stories that you want to share, but it also can be hard for people when they are so done with all of that, but still find that they want some connection to something spiritual. How do you find a connection that feels safe? How do you find your way back in? Because I think there's something very healing about putting your past behind you if it has been so unpleasant and damaging. Mm, but then, yeah, some people are fine with it and others think I'm missing something and I don't want to have to say goodbye to it all just because it was presented in a way that was sort of a perversion, really, of how it's supposed to be. And there must be a healthy way of approaching this. So I'm curious how, how you dealt with finding your way back in and knowing, I want to also say that's not a necessarily a value of mine. I don't need for people to be religious or not. It's just fulfilling what you feel like you want in your life and not needing to be so far away from it just because of how you were mistreated in the past. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I just want to make this very clear that, you know, I, I have the utmost respect for my friends who have left religion, Andrew being one of them. And, you know, I I think that some of my friends who have also grown up in similar environments and have left have very valid reasons of leaving. And so I, I respect and honor that. For me personally, though, there was a brief time in my life without my parents' knowledge that I began studying various uh, different belief systems. And through that, I found that the teachings of Jesus just felt very peaceful and comforting to me. I didn't really know what I believed at that point in life. I was in high school. Here's another weird thing. As strict as my parents were, somehow I was allowed to have a computer in my room with internet. But I did some exploring there. And then I went to a very religious college, uh, similar to the one Andrew went to. It's just in Florida. And uh, I met my husband there. Um, Still believed a lot of the same things. And there was a point in my life where I was asking a lot of questions about God. And I'd always believed that oh, I was going to go to hell if I didn't pray a prayer or, you know, didn't live this way or God didn't love me or for whatever wrong turn I made, there was going to be eternal fire and damnation waiting around the corner for me. And I've lived in so much fear. And I remember I would sit in my room for hours reading the backs of gospel tracts the prayers, the chick tracks, you know, where the people are burning and like dying and like their life is flashing before their eyes on this giant screen. Terrifying. Um, and I would read these, read these prayers on the backs of these booklets, hoping, just wishing that I was good enough for God to hear me. And I carried that fear even into adulthood. And it was actually reading, it's just in the book of Acts, but there's a story about an Ethiopian man who is riding home from a place of worship. So, you know, newsflash, Christianity did not start in America. I think we have a lot of that bastardized Christianity here when a lot of people had it first and we have really messed that up. And so the the Ethiopian man is reading a story and it's from Isaiah. So it's, you know, foretelling of Jesus and all this. And he's like, I, I don't understand. I don't get this. And so he's talking to another apostle, uh, Philip, who's explaining to him what he's reading. He's like, do you understand what you're reading? He's like, no. And so they have this conversation. And as they're riding along, he looks over and he sees some a pool of water. I guess it was like a little lake or something. He says, hey, what's stopping me from being baptized? And he's like, well, do you believe? He's like, yeah. So he goes and gets baptized and that's the end of the story. And I remember having a light bulb moment at that moment, just thinking, where did he read the back of a gospel track? Where did he cry and scream down at an altar? Where did he have a pastor tell him that, you know, he wasn't good enough? Where did he have, you know, someone saying that, oh, because you did this or whatever, you will burn in eternity? The one question was, do you believe there's water? 
do you want to make it public? Yeah. That was the end of the story. And I remember thinking, wow, I have been put under so much pressure to believe a specific way, to have a specific set of morals, to have specific guidelines, even to the point of accepting abuse to somehow be loved and accepted by God when there was none of that in this story. And something switched in my mind where I thought, if this is what it means to have a relationship with God or to explore this, maybe I'm wrong. You know, I'm wrong about all this stuff. That's kind of that catalyst that's pushed me forward into really deconstructing my faith and literally taking things line by line, looking at tradition, practices, even down to the way I dress or even down to tattoos. Like I would have gone to hell for this in my you know, upbringing, but it's, it's really challenged me to think that way. And also to be more compassionate towards people who don't have the same values and beliefs and to not, not live in a way that's judgment. Yeah. That's all I saw growing up was judgment, no love, no acceptance, no, no compassion of just sitting with someone like, Hey, do you, do you want to learn about this? Do you want to understand about this? Sure. And then having a conversation, it was always the person, you know, throwing a track in my face that forced belief on someone where it it had no personal value or meaning. It's just someone else's ideas and philosophies. And that's what's really pushed me to where I'm at today. And, And also why I'm passionate about speaking up when it comes to religious abuse and how people are treated. The idea of being judged. It happens within very controlled situations where there is this interesting, well, it's like a almost like a roller coaster. And I I think about this and I've talked about this before on the podcast in this way, but you're highlighting it so well, just the judgment that is rampant where people are put down, people know they're going to be judged. And there can also be judgment about the whole rest of the world that doesn't believe this way. And so here, a lot of people talk about this roller coaster, like they're being bolstered up to feel superior than the rest of the world. But within that context, they're also being pushed down and judged. Knowing where you stand seems almost impossible. And also being able to meet people eye to eye, because you're either less than or you're over. Like, How do you really see how I'm just like you in all these fundamental ways? I don't need to be less than. I don't need to be more than. We are just all common travelers on this planet. That takes some doing to get used to you not feeling less than or greater than, I think. Oh, yeah. Lots of therapy. Lots of therapy. Lots of therapy and, you know, really honest conversations, not just with Christians, but actually expanding that worldview. And, having friends that don't believe the same way as you, I think that's so important because if we don't, we isolate ourselves into this tiny little bubble where we do start to point fingers and we think, oh, we're better than everyone. And taking a a hard look at that mindset and then having your therapist call you out on things, which is awkward and uncomfortable, (laughs) but necessary. So just as we're talking about your story and also coming out of it, I mean, are there other recollections that you wanted to share with us or are there things about your healing that you have found really helpful and what it's been like to put words to what you've experienced and to say it out loud? Yeah, there's so many experiences, uh, strange experiences that I've had growing up down to, you know, dress code, I think was something that I'd never understood. And I think you were saying earlier that there's a, a lot of environments like this, there's just never consistency. And I think that's in efforts for means for control. You know, one day if the, the dress wasn't long enough, I was sitting. Well, one day, you know, it was okay if it was this length or that length. I remember a specific instance and I was not allowed to wear pants or anything like that growing up. I had a, a skirt that came to my calf and it looked weird. Um, so I wanted to hem up to right below my knee. Oh, just so slutty. Um, so I asked my mom to do that. And she said, yes. And um, I remember my dad just making these really horrible comments at me for how provocative I was for wanting to shorten my skirt. And I was just so immodest and I was not pleasing to the Lord. And there was just a lot of inconsistency. And a couple months later, I wore that same skirt and there was no repercussions. So it was hard navigating that. 
knowing when your parents would just flip the switch and be angry. I developed a lot of people-pleasing tendencies with that, of just constantly being on edge of what emotion are they going to express today? Who do I need to show up as so I don't get in trouble? That's something that I'm also working through as well and being able to show up more assertively, even in workplaces, expressing my needs or saying that, you know, I need this deadline, even in regular jobs, you know, that's been a fear that I've had to work through even as an adult. And so I think, you know, just hearing other people's stories as well, people who have survived cults and have had these unrealistic expectations put on them, that stays with you for a really long time. And Leaning into that healing part of things, I, I think there's sometimes even shame when we start to heal from those things of like, oh, why did I think that way? What was wrong with me? I'm so embarrassed. Sometimes I look back at where I was 10, 15 years ago, like, oh, I, I told that person they were going to hell. Like, what, what was I thinking? Like, that's embarrassing. And I, I think back and, but I have to remember to have compassion for myself as I heal and as I let go of toxic ideologies that we can grow we can learn and we can heal. And especially if you were a child, you didn't know any better. You didn't know that it was inappropriate to go up to someone at a restaurant and leave a gospel track while they were on a date. You didn't know. That's what you were told to do. You were doing your best. And, you know, it's, it's cringy looking back, but holding space for that compassion has been a really big part of my healing. And, and just letting myself grow and recognize those things is has been a big part of that. Yeah. My mom tells a story of being raised. Well, her, she was raised in New York. Her father unfortunately passed away when she was young. So her grandparents who were from Eastern Europe came and moved in. And the grandfather was a very sweet, relaxed guy and would sneak her a penny for candy or ice cream on the way home when she was little. I mean, she's already 90. So this was was dating her with the amount that that cost. But her grandmother... I come from a line of very strong, opinionated women. I'm actually considered very quiet in comparison. And the grandmother would take my mom to Coney Island during the summer. And the grandmother would hold my mom's head, kind of drag her around and kick sand in the face of any couples who were making out. Oh, no. She was religious. And my poor mom would actually, she would mouth the words, I'm sorry. (laughs) to the couple like this wasn't my idea but you're sometimes pushed to do things you're taught this is the right thing and this is going to help people stay on a path towards goodness you know not and in the retrospect you're thinking oh no that sounds horrible but there can also be this sort of self-righteousness that comes with like giving someone a track. You are deciding what's best for them. Like my, you know, great grandmother who was sure that these people were doing horrible things as opposed to just, you know, I don't know, kissing. So I'm wondering also before we finish up, when you were saying that this time in your life between nine and 14 went for these five years, what stopped it at age 14? Oh, wow. So I wish it was due to the fact there was accountability. The reason, this is so Baptisty, but the reason, the reason, it, I don't know how to describe it, but the reason this person left our church was because they wanted to become a deacon. And because women couldn't be in leadership, they were told to leave. Oh, wow. It had nothing to do with the fact they were abusive. Yeah. Yeah, so they they were asked to leave because they made my dad upset because he he didn't want any women leaders in his church. It was okay if they were a piano player, of course, but they couldn't be a deacon. So uh, he he told them to leave. Another one of those head scratching, head spinning moments where you're thinking, okay, you know, like I think of Reverend Moon. Oh yeah, he put in jail, but for tax evasion. Oh, really? That was the worst thing that happened, but that's the only thing I guess they could get them on. And for the people who had been abused, you know, they're thinking, really, that doesn't, that's not why this should have happened. No, Mm-mm. I see it all the time. Uh, there is a organization right now that's, things are finally starting to come to light. Um, it's a mission board in Georgia and there were multiple allegations of sexual abuse, including children that were victims of this person that ran the organization. And I'm thinking the way this is going to go, if if there is any 
legal repercussion, it will be because of tax evasion. The reason being is that all the survivors have been either shamed or bullied into silence. And I think that happens a lot. Does happen a lot. And so for you, part of your healing sounds like has been to not be silenced and to not be silent. And so for others listening who may find themselves in situations like this or having been and are still on the path to trying to figure out how to either make sense of it, move on from it, feel strong, what's been helpful to you? What realizations, what things as part of your healing process have been fundamental in giving you strength? I think a couple different things, and and this can be seen in a few different ways. And I want to be mindful that you know, not everyone chooses to stay within a religious realm. So I want to be respectful of that as well. Um, But if you do identify as spiritual or Christian, I think there is that guilt of, oh, I'm going to ruin their ministry. Or what about all the people they've done good for? And what about all these things that they're giving money to or charity organizations? And they hold all that responsibility and weight on themselves. And there's that fear of that for anyone who is is feeling that or afraid that it's going to be their fault if they come forward. I hope whoever you are hears me loud and clear. That abuse, probably one, did not start with you. And even if it did, they chose to do that. They chose to abuse you. That was their choice. You did not sit there and ask them to do that to you. And I think we hold a lot of that responsibility and that shame on ourselves. Like, oh, it was was my fault. So if I come forward, it's still going to be my fault because now I've taken Reverend or Pastor so-and-so and put them in a bad light. No, they were already evil people before you ever spoke up. Just because it happened in silence doesn't mean it didn't happen. And if you come forward, I promise you there are survivors within the religious and non-religious realm that will be more than happy to support you and believe every word you say. And if you've never been believed before, it might be scary. You might feel like, oh, it's going to happen again, or someone's going to point fingers at me or say, oh, ask me, what were you wearing? Did you wear a dress long enough to church? You know, all those accusations and awful things that many survivors have heard, which I like to add that happens to men too um, at church. But there are people that want to believe you and will. So please don't hold that responsibility of ruining their ministry based on the evils they did to you, because that was not your fault. Oh, it is. It's so powerful. And yeah, I think to put that on people that they're somehow going to be destroying somebody else and they have to worry about that. I have I work with clients who have family members who have abused them or spouses, but who are in politics or who are religious leaders. And so they can't say anything because do they want to destroy their career? Well, really, if they didn't want to have to worry about their career being destroyed, maybe they should have thought twice before they did what they did. But it's such good advice. And I think just having people hear you talk sometimes gives people the courage to speak, or at the very least, the acknowledgement that their experience was not totally unique, that they're not the only ones in this world who have gone through that, whatever that is. Because when you're isolated, you think that. Yeah, I, I think I believed that until about 2017, actually. So that was the first time I had, well, I had, I had talked to a few people about what had happened to me. I had seen a counselor originally for anger, didn't realize that the root of this was all that trauma and just things that I had suppressed for so long. And then I talked to a group of ladies about it. But in 2017, it was the first time I'd ever written a public blog about the sexual abuse and what had happened to me. And I remember thinking, oh, this is the end of my life. I was going to click upload and uh, I'm, just, I'm done. Everything's over. And instead, I woke up the next morning with hundreds of comments, emails, and messages from people who had also experienced similar things, some within the church, and felt that they were completely alone. And I think it is every abuser's dream to keep people feeling like they should be and are isolated because they can keep doing what they do. And it's disgusting that they prey on people and make them feel that they're going to be alone forever. But I think the more we speak up, the more we push back to that. Right on. Isami, thank you. Thank you for 
sharing this with us and and for also being in a in a very lovely way the symbol of survival of moving beyond a very dismal childhood in us in so many ways i mean i wish it were not that picture in my head but you know it sounds like it was extremely difficult and there was a lot of suffering and a lot of sadness and more than anyone should have to bear. And I'm so happy you're in a, a happier place now in your life and are able to be in a relationship that I'm sure makes a lot more sense um, and hopefully fulfills you in a lot of other ways. And, and now you get to be the person that you want to be also in the world, which is great and have a voice. So thanks for sharing yours with us. Thank you so much. One more thing before you go. Thank you, Isami. Thank you so much for speaking with us. I know that when you go around talking about your story, it's not an easy thing to do. And I'm sure it's not an easy thing to say, I was trafficked. And it's certainly not an easy thing to say that the person who trafficked you was your mother. I mean, I don't know how you get past that. And certainly, as a therapist, I would hope to think that I could help people try, but that is a daunting task. When you are dealing with adults around you who are unsafe, it's hard to know if there is a place for you in this world that is safe. Isami talked about having this person who she was sent to, who was sexually abusive towards her, who really crossed boundaries with her for many years, for I think it was five years, during formative years, during time that you're developing your sense of yourself and supposed to be learning about boundaries as your body's developing and you're feeling potentially awkward in general, but especially if someone is being inappropriate with you, it's very hard to know what to do with all those feelings. And it's very hard to know what to do if the adults around you are also equally unsafe for other reasons. You don't have someone to go to, and you also don't have a frame of reference. You don't have people around you who are noticing, who are saying, stop doing that to Isami. Just get your hands off of her or stop insinuating things. Stop looking at her that way. Stop touching her. Stop giving her over to other people who treat her this way. But if you don't have that, then you really do feel like you are on your own. And it's also hard to get a gauge if the feelings that you're having are quote-unquote normal, if the fact that it's bothering you is right, that it should be bothering you or not. How do you find that out? There are so many kids who feel shame about being treated this way, so they don't reach out for help. There is something about the human condition that makes us turn inward when things like this happen more often than turn outward. So we just wrestle with it inside. And then we don't get a sense that there are potentially people around us who are interested in protecting us, who will get angry about this happening, who will want to step in and do something. What's also hard when you hear about Isami's story is that this was done within a religious context, not unlike other people who have been abused within religious contexts, but still. It makes it that much harder to feel like you have a leg to stand on, that you could actually be upset about what's happening because it, a lot of times in these religious environments, you're supposed to be happy. You're supposed to be appreciative. That's the way you show that you are spiritual. That's the way you show that you are saved in some environments. So you're not supposed to be mad and you're not supposed to feel violated. This is all part of it. And she also talked about being physically abused by her father and only having this insight about the fact that what he was doing was wrong when she just very innocently was talking to a friend and saying, yeah, well, doesn't your father do that to you? And, you know, the look of horror I'm sure that she got or confusion at the very least would have been enough in that moment to kind of open her eyes to the fact that what she was experiencing across the board was simply not okay. And that maybe then there was a reason that she was having the physical 
impact that she was having, that she was probably having a whole variety of symptoms, physiological as well as emotional. Our bodies tell us a lot about how we're feeling. They tell us a lot about what we're needing when we don't have the words or we don't have the freedom to have the words. And so I am so happy that Isami now has the freedom to have the words, that she can go around and talk about what happened to her, that she can go around and validate for others who have been through this, that this is not something that should ever have happened. And now you get to say something about it. And the people who have done this don't get to just get away with it. And that you can actually get some justice just by saying, this is what happened to me and this was wrong. Thank you so much, Isami, for all the work that you're doing to educate people and to empower people and to help people not feel alone. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.